0: i want to start by saying that I love football. When I was a young boy, we moved to Dallas, Texas. And we moved there in 1963. The Cowboys were a young expansion team. They were losers. I lived there for five years, and by the time I left in 1968, they had played in two NFL championship games, and I became a rabid Cowboy fan. But my favorite player in all of football was this guy right here, Dick Butkus. When I moved back to Georgia, I put that cover of Sports Illustrated on my wall. Every morning when I got up, that's the face I looked at. I wanted to grow up to be the next Dick Buckus. And when I was in high school, I, I, I played on my, uh, college fo- uh, my high school football team. I was a linebacker. The only thing I had in common with Dick Buckus is I wore number 51. That was my number. Dick was 6'3", 250 pounds. I'm not. You see, I had a, a heart to play, but I didn't have the gifts to play at the next level. I did play intramural football at Furman, but after that, football became for me really a spectator sport. <clears throat> I didn't have the gifts that were required to play big-time college football on a team. Now, picture the church as a team, okay? Okay? If you're a part of the church of Jesus Christ, if you know Christ personally, then you have an important part to play on the team that is the church. You've been given gifts to participate and be involved on the team, to help the team win and succeed. Our passage here in Ephesians 4 gives us a blueprint for effective church life. I want to examine the model that we have here this morning and try to take some principles from there and apply it to our church here at East Cooper. And I hope to show you that because we're all gifted by Christ and therefore called to minister on his behalf, we should seek to build up the body by speaking the truth in love. Our text this morning begins in the middle of a paragraph, so let me set the stage of exactly where we are. Ephesians 4 starts the practical section of this book. And Paul has one overarching command or statement to the church at Ephesus. He says, you're to walk or live in a manner worthy of the calling that you have. And then he lists certain character traits that to exemplify the life that is worthy of our calling. And then he spends about three verses talking about the unity that we have in this calling and he closes that by talking about the one God who is father of us all, the focus on unity. Well, verse 7, he shifts gears and the focus is not so much on everyone together but it is on each one individually. Notice what he says, to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The object of the sentence is each and every one, So what he said is, every person at the church in Ephesus, every one of you, have received grace in the form of a gift. And he says that you have received that on the basis of grace. Grace is one of Paul's favorite words. He uses it in all of his letters. One writer defined it, which I particularly like this definition. He says, grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Paul often uses grace to refer to our salvation experience for example in Ephesians 2 where he says by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it's a gift of God but at least 15 times in his letters Paul uses grace in a different way a grace for service such as we have right here the Greek word for grace is charis it's in your bulletin there and it refers to something freely given undeserved and unmerited and it's this free undeserved grace in the form of a gift that has been given to each one of us now notice finally that the gift that we have through grace ultimately comes from a source of Jesus Christ himself it is he who has given it to us now elsewhere in the New Testament it speaks of God the Father as the one who gives gifts or the Holy Spirit The key point is that the triune God is the source from which the gift and grace come. The last thing I'll note about this verse is that the grace of Christ given to each of us is given in different measures or forms. We all have gifts, but they differ, and not only that, they differ in measure. Best example I could think of is Buster. Buster's got an incredible gift to preach. Now, there are other people in this city and around who who have the gift of preaching, but they may not have it in quite the measure that he has it. Um, So that's the kind of thing that I think he's communicating here. Romans chapter 12, verse 6, Paul says the same thing in a slightly different way. He says, we each have different gifts according to the grace given to us. Now notice that Paul touches on the same points, but says it in a slightly different way. In Romans 12, the word he uses for gifts is the Greek word charismata, we get the word charismatic from that. And the root word for charismata and charis are the same, gift and grace. So you see that they, they stem from the same root. These, these concepts are integrally connected. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says it this way. He says, one in the same spirit works all these things distributing to each one of us just as he wills. So you see, it's by God's sovereign plan That he has gifted each of us individually just as he wills. Now spiritual gifts can be a somewhat controversial topic. There are are really five passages in the New Testament that speak of gifts. But you take them together and basically there are two different types. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. John MacArthur defines spiritual gifts this way. He says spiritual gifts are divine enablements for ministry. Not natural but supernaturally given by the Holy Spirit. John Stott's definition I find a little simpler and he says a spiritual gift is God's grace funneled through your personality. So, when we think about gifts the main thing to remember is that each of us have them, they come through the grace which only Christ and His sovereignty distributes to the church. Now, verses 8 through 10 of this text I skipped over and I did that for a reason. Number one, they're very hard to understand. Number two, they're not really pertinent to the point I'm trying to make here. It's kind of a parenthesis, but basically what's happening there is you have a poetic description of Christ who's um, died on the cross and has risen victorious over the grave and ascended into heaven. And the picture is of Christ as a triumphant general. As he ascends, he returns with spoils of war in his train, and he's distributing these spoils to his troops which is the church and so when we get to verse 11 part of the spoils of victory that Christ distributes as a result of his conquering death and and sin is not exactly what we would find they're gifts but they're gifts spoken of in a different way the gifts in verse 7 were gifts given to individual people such as the gift of mercy or the gift of hospitality When we come to verse 11, he says this, that Christ has given some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, pastors and teachers. These are people. So instead of individual gifts like mercy, he's given people to the church. And these people have a specific function to perform within the body. And that's what we come to in chapter uh, 4, verse 12. Here Paul explains why Christ has given the gifts of pastors and teachers to the church. He says, they've been given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body. Now, how we interpret verse 12 of Ephesians 4 is crucial to our understanding of how the church should effectively do ministry. There are two possible paradigms based on how you understand this verse. The first one I've called the hierarchical paradigm. Here you have the pastor teacher who's over all, and he's got three functions. First of all, he's to equip the saints, and then he's to go out and do the work of ministry, and then he's to build up the body of Christ. Now, you see this translation reflected, you see this paradigm reflected in this translation. It's the King James translation. He's given the pastor for the perfecting of the saints, comma, that's one job, then the work of ministry, too, and edifying the body of Christ three. Now, I grew up with this kind of understanding in the church I grew up in. You see, ministry was something that you hired out. You know, you hire a guy to do ministry. If, if we wanted the gospel shared, we had, we had a revival service, and we'd invite people to church so that the evangelist or the pastor could share the gospel. That, that was the model that I grew up with. I don't think that that is reflected here, and I don't think it's biblical. What I think Paul really is trying to communicate is this. I've called it the biblical paradigm. You see, this is a more horizontal approach. The pastor or teacher is given to equip the saints, me and you, so that we might do the work of ministry. We become the hands and the feet, the eyes and the ears out there that are actually functioning to serve. And the result of the equation of these two things working in synergy Is that the building up of the body of Christ you see this reflected in a more modern translation like the NIV where it says that pastors are given to equip his people for works of service that's what they're there for so that the body of Christ can be built up John Stott speaks about it this way he says the New Testament envisions ministry not as the prerogative of a clerical elite But as the privileged calling of all the people of God, thank God that in our generation this biblical vision of every member in ministry is taking a firm hold in the church. So the dichotomy between clergy and laymen is a false one and it creates a false idea that only these special people, these holy ones, are privileged to do the work and have the responsibility for ministry. I don't think that's a biblical idea each of us have been given gifts and we've been given them (coughs) so that the pastors and teachers can develop those within us that we might use them for effective service J.I. Packer expands on the idea this way he says Paul's emphasis on the universality of spiritual gifts to Christians with its corollary that every member ministry in the body of Christ should be the rule everywhere has been received widely in recent years a good thing. Still, lay passivity persists in many churches. Paul's vision of church growth has to do with Christians expressing Christ to each other in all sorts of mutual service, support, and help as love dictates. Many of you might remember last year we uh, had an initiative throughout our church. It was church-wide. It was called Kingdom Impact. And Kingdom Impact had three prongs associated with it. And prong number one was Every member in ministry. You heard, it's interesting, both Packer and Stott used that exact phrase in discussing this verse. We even had this beautiful slide, which I'm sure many of you remember. The objectives of Kingdom Impact, number one, involve every member in ministry. Well, now might be a good time to just stop and ask yourself this question. Do you really believe what I'm saying? Do you really believe that you have been gifted by the grace of Christ? And that you've been given that gift to minister and serve within the body? And if so, are you using that gift? If you're not, you're missing a tremendous blessing. And not only that, I can tell you this from experience: that if you're not exercising your gift, you know what happens to it? The same thing that happens to your muscles when you don't use them. They grow soft and eventually they atrophy. Lack of exercise will stunt your spiritual growth. And believe it or not, your growth individually is intimately tied to the growth of the entire body. Look at the next verse, a next phrase rather, and see how Paul connects these together. He says, as the saints apply themselves in the work of service, the result is it builds up the entire body of Christ. One writer said it this way God's gifts are not toys to play with, they're tools to build with. The word for build up that translated here can also be translated edify, and Paul uses it 16 different times in his letters. It basically means to fix what is broken or supply what is lacking. The primary focus is on the internal strengthening of the body of Christ, the church. Paul uses the same word in Romans chapter 12, I'm sorry, Romans 15 verse 2. He says it this way, let each one of us please his neighbor for his good, for his edification, i.e. building up. So as we use our gifts, we supply what's lacking to each other. Now, opportunities for this type of ministry and using your gifts abound. They are abundant in this church. You might remember that when we did the Kingdom Impact thing, we we had this booklet available. Now, I had some of these put out in the back today. A few of these things may be outdated, but the vast majority are still here. Over a 100 different opportunities of service available right here in this book. Everything from nursery work, the kitchen help, both cooking and cleaning, guys. I'm not for the cooking part, but I can, I can clean. Tech support, um, prison ministry, choir. And I want to highlight one, children's Sunday school. The reason I want to highlight is this. When I was growing up, there were two precious women who taught me throughout junior high. It was a call back then. Now it's middle school. And I, tell, I was a pretty rambunctious boy. And these two ladies had to kind of hold me down sometimes, and I thought at the time they were, they were a bit too strict. But, but you know what? They showed up every week, and, and they loved on me, and they communicated the truth of the Scripture to me. I can still quote verses that I learned in junior high school. You know what? For you to work with these young people in here, you don't have to be a charismatic leader. I'm sorry. You I messed that up. Boy, I've got a good line here and I messed it up. You don't have to be a charismatic speaker. You just have to be a loving leader. That's what it takes. Pouring your life into those people faithfully and it can make a difference for their entire life. Well, the ultimate goal of building up the church is that we all attain unity and maturity. Paul says... In verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. First of all, Paul says that we work, as we work to build up the body, it promotes the unity of faith. That's the goal we're striving for until we all attain to it. Now, earlier in this chapter, Paul says that we're to preserve the unity of of the faith. So which is it? Is it something that we have that we're preserving, or is is it a goal that we are striving to attain? The answer is yes. It is both. It's like sanctification. There are degrees of sanctification that we've experienced, and yet there's so much more that we can. Notice he says that this unity of faith is grounded in objective content. It is unity of the faith. Jude describes it this way, he says, we are to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So this objective content provides the foundation and structure for our unity. But our unity is also based on our knowledge of the Son of God. The word for knowledge here is experiential knowledge. Okay? It's not just something we have in our head. Let me give you an example. This summer, my daughter Caroline went to Europe to study for six weeks. And so I read about some of the things she was going to do. And I read that in in Switzerland, they actually have skydiving and bungee jumping. And sure enough, when Caroline went over there one bright Saturday in June, she jumped out of a plane in the morning and jumped off a cliff in the afternoon. Now, Caroline really knows that these things are happening there. Because she experienced them. You see, all I know is what I have read and what I've heard and seen in pictures. You know, many people have read and heard about Jesus Christ. They intellectually know facts about Him. And yet, they've never really experienced a new birth. They've never come to the point in their life where they understand that they're a sinner in need of a Savior. Where they have trusted Christ to pay the price for their sin and what what he's saying here Paul says is that our unity is based on a shared subjective experience of knowing Christ personally so that you have combined both the objective knowledge of the faith and the subjective knowledge of our personal relationship with Christ that's the foundation for our unity that shared experience Now, also he says that as the body is built up, it builds up and it leads to maturity. The mature man that Paul is speaking of here, I think, must be understood corporately. I think the primary reference is not just to individuals becoming mature, although that's certainly implied in the text, but notice he uses the singular word man. I think he's speaking of the corporate or communal nature of the body of Christ, So that the aim of ministry is not just that individuals would would be built up, but that the entire body would be built up and take on the likeness and the personality of Christ. Now in verse 14, Paul outlines the evidence of maturity. He says that we're no longer like children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. So the first result of our mature likeness of Christ is that we're no longer gullible and unstable. And unfortunately, those two words accurately describe far too many people in the church today. And really unfortunate is the fact that I don't have time to talk about what I wanted to talk about in this regard because um, I don't, I'm not going to keep you here too long. I want you to continue to pay attention. So we're going to have to skip through this slide and this slide and that slide. And that brings us to really the the final focus which is verse 15 it's really the climax of the text and that's where I want us to spend our time here in verse 12 Paul explained why we're to exercise our spiritual gifts in verse 15 he tells us how we can effectively minister to build up the body he says speaking the truth in love we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even Christ now this verse in the original is stated as an imperative it's a command As a matter of fact, one writer said this, this is perhaps the most important ethical guideline in the entire New Testament. It's a very strong statement. Now, some people go to this text and they apply it this way. They say, what Paul's really talking about here is the importance of telling the truth. Now, obviously, the Ten Commandments tell us that that is so. It is absolutely consistent with the biblical message. As a matter of fact, in verse 25 of this chapter, Paul says this, Laying aside falsehood, you should speak truth, each one of you, to the other. But I don't think that's the primary thing that Paul is talking about here. I think the main focus of truth here is biblical or doctrinal truth. Now, why do I say that? Two reasons. Number one, in verse 11, you have five different offices described. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. All five of those guys have a function to be truth communicators. They're communicating biblical revelation from God. That's their responsibility. Secondly, look at verse 14. What does he say there? Don't be carried here and there by every wind of doctrine. Don't get fooled. So the emphasis here, I believe, is on the communication of biblical truth. And that should not surprise us. Jesus said when he prayed in John 17, he's praying to the Father. He says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Now, an even bigger question than what kind of truth is being spoken of here is the entire question of truth itself. Chuck Colson said this in one of his last books, The question of truth is the great fault line of Western culture today. And yet the dominant view in our society, I can tell you, is that there is no such thing as objective absolute truth. Colson says, why do you think people rebel so much against this? He says, well, human nature wants to resist the claims of that truth upon us. We cling to the idea, Colson says, that we can create our own truth. If something works for you, then it's true for you. But if something different is true and works for me, then we have different kinds of truth. Let me share this illustration. I'll never forget, I was at a convention... Uh, several years ago, and I was in a conversation with a Jewish lawyer, who's actually a friend of mine, and we're discussing the truth claims of Christianity and Judaism, and the the discussion is amicable, but it starts to get intense, okay, it starts to get a little tense, so we have this female at our table, and she's feeling uncomfortable, and she says, "I I think you're both right, and I said, Holly, Holly, listen, I may be right, Or Steve may be right, but one thing is for certain, we cannot both be right. You see, based on the laws of logic, that is correct. But unfortunately, many people today don't understand or use the laws of logic in our society. Francis Schaeffer delivered a famous address at the International Congress of World Evangelism in 1974. He titled this address, Two Contents, Two Realities. The first content that he addressed was the importance of sound doctrine. Schaefer said this, Christianity is a specific body of truth. But get this now, in the original language, the word for truth here is actually a verb. It's a verb. So, so you could translate this literally, truthing in love. Truthing in love. The thought is that truth is not just something you know here, but it's something that is actually applied and lived out in your everyday life. Mere truth alone is not enough. Schaeffer said this. He said, the end of Christianity is not just the repetition of mere propositions. After having the correct propositions, the end of the matter is love to God and our neighbor. A dead, ugly orthodoxy must be rejected as sub-Christian. So you see, the truth can't just be spoken, it's got to be reflected in our daily lives. In Romans 12, Paul connects love and gifts, just like this passage. Do you see this passage? He spoke about gifts, now he's talking about love. In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, you have the very famous love chapter. Do you know what it's sandwiched between? Chapter 12 and chapter 14 are a the fullest discussion in all the Bible of spiritual gifts. Close connection. You see, these gifts can't exist apart from love. In Romans 12, Paul says it this way. He connects the gifts and the love, and he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now, the word he uses there for be devoted is the word that we use for the devotion of a parent to a child. Now, think about if you have a child this morning you just think a little bit about what that kind of devotion is really like the kind of devotion you have for your children that's the kind of devotion we're to exhibit to one another the second thing he says is that devotion should be expressed in brotherly love both of these concepts are family concepts you see that i've got one brother in the whole world one blood brother and I love him so dearly. And, and what Paul is saying is that our love for family should be the same type and intensity of love we express within the body of Christ. Francis Schaefer described it this way. I love this. He says, the Bible speaks of the beauty of human relationships. I could call it love, but we've so demoted that word that it's often meaningless, so I use the word beauty. There should be an observable beauty for the world to see in the way true Christians treat each other. I want to share you an an example of someone who recently spoke the truth in love to me. Some of you may know that this past week, my daughter Brooke became Miss South Carolina. And the week before, uh, she had her interview on Monday, and she was nervous about it, and I got a phone call from Lolly Campson, And um, she was asking about tickets for Saturday night, and I told her, I said, hey, by the way, Brooke has her interview this afternoon, so if you think about it, say a prayer for her. Lolly goes, what are you doing right now? I said, well, um, I'm, I'm driving down the road in my truck. She said, well, don't close your eyes, but, but bow your heart. She said, I wanna pray for her right now. And so Lali proceeded to pray the most precious prayer and just reminding me of the truth of God's sovereignty and of God's promised presence to be with his children and to be with Brooke. And I was incredibly touched. And, and so Brooke calls me after the interview and tells me about um, how it went. And, and I shared with her how she'd been prayed for. And she teared up on, on the phone and, and we talked about the, the meaningful way that she communicated love and graced both of us by speaking truth. So Schaefer says that if we don't show this kind of love, that it really negates our confession. You see, men should see within the church an alternative way that we treat each other. Schaefer says that the mark of the Christian is love. Jesus, in John chapter 13, said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. You see, we have to show the reality of Christ by the way we interact with one another. Schaefer closes his two contents, two realities, with this. We need two orthodoxies. First, an orthodoxy of doctrine. And second, an orthodoxy of community. We've got to live out our love in everyday relationships. Chuck Swindoll is the president of Dallas Seminary, and he says there's three key components of this community exercise of love. The first is commitment to one another. He says, Look at the apostles. In Acts chapter 2, it says that the apostles devoted themselves to fellowship. It was, it was something that was intentional in the way they lived their lives. They were devoted to it. They, they were committed to involvement with one another within the church. Second thing that Swindoll talks about in showing forth this community love is it involves vulnerability. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that if, if one part of the body is suffering, that then we all suffer. That there has to be, in relationships, a vulnerability and a willingness to be open about who we really are, our own hurts and struggles. Finally, he talks about the third element as accountability. He says, if we really are members of one another, which is what the Bible says, then we have to hold each other accountable in these relationships. We're all called to be love contributors, not just love consumers. I confess that I went through a period in my life where I really neglected this kind of commitment and accountability. Um, And then several years ago, I decided to join Man to Man. About three years ago, we started. And we come together every Friday morning during the year. (sighs) We take off time in the summer, but uh, we meet down in in the gym, and we have breakfast, and then Buster shares a brief message from the Word, and then we sit down with the same guys every week, and we try to apply that word in our own lives, and we pray for each other, and we share each other's hurts, and we celebrate each other's victories, and I've really grown to love those guys. In addition to that, I meet with a young man on a very regular basis uh, when he's not traveling, and we share fellowship and mutual encouragement around God's word. My wife says that my heart's so obstinate, I need two forms of accountability in my life. So, so that's, that's what I've got. But anyway, wh- what about you? What about you? You know, we have a new church year starting just around the corner. Think about how this text might apply to your life next year. Maybe it's time for you to think about joining a community group and getting connected with other people in this body to develop these kind of relationships. Maybe it's a women's Bible study or man-to-man. There are great opportunities to do what Schaefer calls develop the beauty of human relationships and speak the truth to love one to another. Notice in verse 15 that as we do this, as we follow this command, we all grow up into Christ. The main verb there is actually a command. He says, let us all grow up. That's our duty as Christians. Ray Stedman defines growth this way. He says, growth is a matter of knowledge plus obedience plus time. Now this morning, hopefully, I've shared a little bit of knowledge with you. Okay, the question is, are you going to take that and obey? Are you going to be responsible to apply it? If you do, I-, I promise that over time, God will begin to grow your faith. He'll begin to stretch you and develop you. Um, this is a quote from Howard Snyder about growth from his book Community of the King he says Christian growth is not just a matter of the individual soul but rather the building of a community in the spirit of Christ the individual emphasis is biblical but it's only partial spiritual growth occurs best in a caring community get this part now this is critical there are spiritual truths that I will never grasp and Christian standards I will never obtain until I share in the community with other believers. The Holy Spirit ministers to us in large measure through each other. We can't be mature Christians by ourselves. You know, Christ could supply our needs individually so that we really never needed anyone else. But He has chosen to use other people to grace you and to grace me and to give us the opportunity to do likewise. The grace comes from God, but it's conveyed along horizontal channels. I like that. Horizontal channels. F.F. Bruce says the higher reaches of the Christian life cannot be attained in isolation from other believers. That is how we grow. That's the key. But ultimately, where does this growth come from? Verse 16 is the key. Look at it it's from Him, from Christ that the whole body grows and builds itself up in love. You see, it's Christ ultimately, He alone, who causes the growth. He provides the power for change. In and of ourselves, we are not capable of living like this. It's only as we experience the power of the risen Christ indwelling in us that we're able to communicate love in this fashion. But notice how Christ does it in verse 16. He says, He... he He alone causes the growth by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. You see, every joint in the body, that's me and you, everyone has a part to play. The problem is mm-hmm. far too many joints that are not working. Too many muscles are showing signs of atrophy. Far too many Christians are spectators, not active participants. Which best describes you this morning? Are you a spectator? Or are you an active participant using your gift to help build a body? You need to ask the Lord to give you direction in this regard in your life, to help you apply this text. Well, finally, notice this. Notice how it's the love of Christ which is both the source <coughs> and the direction of our love. Love is spoken of in this text, actually it frames the entire section. In two, he says we're to forbear with one another in love. In verse 15, we speak the truth in love. In verse 16, the body is built up in love. And in chapter 5, verse 2, he has this final command. You are to walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself for us as a sacrifice to God. Understand this, theology is the basis for ministry. By that, I mean this, the reality of the truth of what Jesus did on the cross, his sacrifice for us, that is the basis upon which we go out and minister. Don't walk out of here today saying, boy, the the message this morning was, I got to get to work. That's what I got to do something. Well, you know what? You should get to work probably, but... That's not the primary message, okay? You've got to hold the biblical balance intention that Paul gives us in Philippians 2 where he says this. You, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. <clears throat> the pastor of Coral Ridge Church said it like this. I've discovered that the more I focus on my need to get better, that is what I've got to do the worse I actually get. I become self-absorbed. Preoccupation with your own performance over Christ's performance for us actually can hinder spiritual growth. It makes us increasingly self-centered and focused. Thankfully, the focus of the Bible is not on the work of the redeemed, but on the work of the Redeemer. It's so easy for us to think about what we have to do, but understand that it is Jesus Christ and his love for us that is the basis upon which we go out and serve. In Romans 5, 5, Paul says this, that the love of Christ is now being poured out in our hearts. That is a subjective experience that we should pray every day, Lord, Lord, Pour that love out in my life. Make it real because it's out of the overflow and experience of that love that we can apply this text and speak the truth to one another in love. I pray this week that as you go and as you think about this next year, you'll you'll ponder what the word says here and ask God to apply it to your life. You know, there's a lot, you look at the church today, there's a lot to be discouraged about. There really is. But remember this. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Christ. We know that ultimate victory is His. Rest in that as you go forward this week. Let's close in prayer. Father, we love You. And we thank You that You have loved us and that Your amazing love was expressed in Your Son who sacrificed Himself on the cross for our sins. And as we ponder the fact that Jesus paid it all, May we realize that all to Him we owe. And we, we thank You for this local body here and how the love of Christ is expressed and how Jesus is honored and lifted up. And we pray that You would continue to glorify Him in all that's done here. We pray in His name. Amen.